neither I nor my wife are particularly sentimental people. We're not the kind who hold on to every scrap of paper our kids have ever colored on. There's nothing wrong with that, it's just not our brand. After we had been married about five years, my wedding ring developed a crack in it. It's something that could have easily been fixed, I would imagine, but for whatever reason, we were in Sam's Club one day and we saw a wedding band that we liked. It was less than $100, so I bought it, and I've been wearing it ever since. In one sense, a wedding ring is not all that important. If I were to take it off, it wouldn't change the fact that I swore vows to her on our wedding day. In another sense, my wedding ring is immeasurably important because it is a visible reminder to me and to anyone else who looks at it that I swore vows to my wife. It's a sign of the promises we made to one another, of the binding covenant into which we entered. In the Old Testament, when God made a covenant, he always gave a visible sign to accompany it. Perhaps the most famous example is the sign God gave to Noah in Genesis 9. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Many years later, when Israel was gathered at Mount Sinai to receive the law from God through Moses, God once again gave them a sign of the covenant he was making. This is how they would be set apart from the nations, by keeping the Sabbath. Listen to the fourth commandment. This is from Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now at first glance, the fourth commandment seems very cut and dry, right? Work six days, rest one day. But in fact, there is a long history of debate over how to apply this command. Within the Old Testament itself, there are numerous case laws that explain how this command applies to specific situations. Outside the Old Testament, there were countless traditions that sprung up to give people concrete answers to questions like, what exactly am I prohibited from doing on the Sabbath, and what am I permitted to do? Even throughout the 2,000 years of Christian history, the debate has continued. So to help us make sense of this fourth commandment, I want to walk us through how the Sabbath was portrayed in the Old Testament, then what we see Jesus doing in the Gospels, and finally what the early church does with the Sabbath in the rest of the New Testament. Hopefully the end result will be that we have a better sense of how this command applies to us. Let's start here in Exodus 20. One of the first things that stands out about the fourth commandment is its symmetry. It begins by saying, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And it ends by saying, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The Lord blessed it, so we remember it. The Lord made it holy, so we keep it holy. In other words, by remembering the Sabbath, we're following God's lead. He is the one who made all things in six days, then rested on the seventh. Surely he could have done all of that in one day, right? He could have done it in less than one second if that's what he wanted to do. But he chose to lay out a pattern for us, a pattern of working six days, then resting on the seventh. He blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy, so we are to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 
What that means is that the fourth commandment is not just about one day of the week. It's about all seven. Notice how God says, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. The command to rest on the seventh day only makes sense when it is coupled with the command to labor for six days. God is teaching us a rhythm, if you will. Work and rest, work and rest, work and rest. This is how he designed us. And we honor him by trusting that he can provide for us in six days what we think we could accomplish in seven. It is not honoring to God to neglect rest, nor is it honoring to God to neglect work. Of course, some people may be unable to work for whatever reason. We're not defined by our work, so we should not make an idol of it. But the point is that both an unwillingness to work and an obsession with work, they're both evidence that we're not really trusting in the Lord. We trust Him to provide for us through the means of our work. And we also trust Him to provide when we rest. Notice also how this command was meant to be extended to everyone under a person's influence. God says, On the Sabbath you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. The Sabbath was not meant to be a burden. God intended it to be a gift which His people received by faith. It was meant to free them from their obsession with what was pressing, with what had to be done, with what was right before their eyes, and to take one day each week to lift their eyes and worship the one who made them, the one who made all things. It was an invitation to rest in His goodness. It was never only about resting one's body, but also resting one's soul, resting your hope in the Lord and trusting in Him. Now, what about Jesus' relationship to the Sabbath. How do we see him treating this command in the Gospels? Well, it's interesting that Jesus was accused of violating the fourth commandment, but the Gospel writers make it clear that Jesus never broke the Sabbath command. Now, that is a very important point to remember, by the way, because in order for Jesus to be a fitting Savior for us, he has to be sinless. He must have kept the law perfectly. If Jesus broke the Sabbath, then we are hopeless in our sin. But praise God, he did not. That does not mean, however, that Jesus accepted all the traditions that had been built up around the Sabbath. He honored the God-given command, while at times going out of his way to break the man-made traditions. When you look at what Jesus did on the Sabbath, other than going to the synagogue to pray and hear God's word, one of the most consistent things the gospel writers present him doing is good works to those who were in need. He told his hungry disciples that it was okay to pick heads of grain for themselves to eat on the Sabbath. He healed a man with a shriveled hand on the Sabbath. He restored a woman with a disabling spirit. He healed a man with dropsy. And when the religious leaders of his day challenged him about his authority to do such things on the Sabbath, this was his response. You can read it in Luke chapter 14. Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. In other words, while Jesus never violated the fourth commandment, he reclaimed the Sabbath as a day of showing compassion and mercy, a day of doing kindness to others. And when you read the rest of the New Testament, you find that the early church saw the Sabbath in an entirely new light after the death and resurrection of Christ. It's not that they saw the fourth commandment as being abolished, but that it had been so utterly fulfilled in Christ that we cannot apply it rightly without any reference to Him. One thing that is very clear when you look at the early church's practice in the New Testament 
is that the significance shifted from the seventh day of the week to the first day. The Sabbath was technically on Saturday, but the early church is consistently said to have gathered together on the first day of the week, Sunday, due to its significance as being the day when Jesus was raised from the dead. They began to call Sunday the Lord's Day. Theologian B.B. Warfield put it this way, Christ took the Sabbath into the grave with him and brought the Lord's Day out of the grave with him on the resurrection morn. So throughout history, there has been widespread consensus among the church that Sunday is the Lord's Day. It is the day when the new covenant people of God, the church, gathers together to worship the risen Christ and to hear from his word. But does that mean that Sunday is now a Christian Sabbath in the sense that we should cease from all work on Sunday? Throughout history and throughout the world, Christians have answered that question in drastically different ways. Some Christians, for example, refrain from shopping on Sundays, while others see it as a day to get prepared for the work week to come. Some Christians refrain from any kind of strenuous physical activity on Sundays, while others use Sunday afternoon or evening as a time to catch up on yard work or laundry, to get some exercise outside. Perhaps one of the most well-known examples in America is Truett Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A, whose stores are, in the words of Kanye West, closed on Sunday. The truth of the matter is that there is some wiggle room for disagreement with regard to how we apply the Sabbath to New Testament Christians. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And in Romans 14, verses 5 and 6, Paul writes, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord, while the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. In other words, there is room for disagreement as we all seek to apply this command. We should not pass judgment on one another, nor should we seek to burden anyone's conscience in an unbiblical way. As Paul says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So People can remember the Sabbath in different ways, yet still honor the Lord and give thanks to Him. So maybe it would be helpful if we identified a few ways that the Sabbath command applies to all of us. I want to suggest three ways. First, we should set aside one day a week when we gather with a local church for corporate worship. Now, there's some wiggle room as to the specifics of what we should or should not do on our day of rest. But one thing that is clear is that we should not neglect the assembling of the Lord's people. As we've seen recently, sometimes that assembling has to be temporarily virtual But the typical pattern is of the church being dispersed throughout the week, then being physically gathered together on one day. Not just when it fits our schedule, not when we've done everything else we need to do or want to do, but strategically planning our week so that we can gather to worship the Lord with the Lord's people on the Lord's day. Second, we should set aside one day for rest from our typical labors. In Hebrew, the word Sabbath is a word for ceasing. It is the one day when you cease from what you do the other six days 
in order to do something different. In an agricultural society, that meant not working in the fields. In a society where more and more people are part of the so-called knowledge economy, it may mean intentionally setting aside that work device, logging out of your work email, or whatever the case may be. Now, Jesus was clear that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, it is not meant to be a noose around our necks. It's not supposed to be a burden that weighs us down. It's meant to be something that frees us. So as long as you're making time to gather with your local church, there's nothing wrong with doing other things on the Lord's day, like getting some exercise. There's nothing wrong with doing some kind of physical labor to help someone else. We, we heard earlier how Jesus used the Sabbath as a day of doing good to others. There's certainly nothing wrong with taking a nap. The point is that we should do everything in faith. We don't need to pass judgment on one another. And I certainly don't want to prescribe certain things that you must do or must avoid, but I hope that you will partake of the good gift of rest for the sake of your own soul. The third and final way we can apply the Sabbath command to ourselves is that we should rest in the finished work of Christ. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 and 10 says. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. I said earlier that the Sabbath command was never about only one day of the week. It was always about all seven. You work for six, then you rest on the seventh. And all of this is done in faith. In a similar way, for a follower of Christ, every day is a day when we can rest in what he has accomplished for us. Every day is a day when we can trust that just as God finished the work of creation, so has Jesus finished the work of redemption. We obey the fourth commandment when we cease from our efforts to earn our way to God, and we simply rest in what He has done in our place. And that is not something we do only on one day of the week, but every day, that we hear and respond to the invitation of Jesus. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Henderson Baptist Church. If you'd like more information about our church, you can visit us on Facebook or check out our website, hendersonbaptist.org.